So this is our third message in this text. We're in Judges chapter 5. and we've No, you will not get a fourth. This will be the last, final one. The last, final one. This is good. This is all on the recording. So let's get it all out. Yeah. So we've been spending extra time in this passage to consider the nature of the relationship between the sovereignty of God and his providential doings and also the choices of people. That God is the first cause and and people and other things are what we call secondary causes. We looked at those things last week. And so what we'll do tonight is we're going to, we'll start out praying because we're not going to reread the text again because we've done that two weeks in a row or three weeks in a row. Or no, two weeks in a row. And, but we're eventually, we'll recap the, uh, the, the passage that we've been dealing with and to point some things out. And then eventually we'll look at a couple examples after we deal with one other question as well. But let's start with prayer and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father in heaven, we are grateful to you for your word, how it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray that you would, by your word tonight, sanctify us, that you would... Help us understand your word, especially this, this difficult topic. Lord, we, we admit our weakness. We admit our inability to rightly and perfectly comprehend these things, but we want to be biblical. We want to do good justice to your word. Help me to rightly handle it, Lord. We pray that you would be exalted most of all, and that Christ would be the focus of all that we do, say, and think, and honoring him in those things. And we pray all this in his precious name. Amen. Okay, so first, if you remember from our text in Judges 4 and then Judges chapter 5, you have God decreeing what will happen through the prophet Deborah. That is his sovereignty, his will, um, his will will be done. His purposes will be accomplished. He's king over all. He has the authority and the right to make such claims. And remember what he said was that they would have deliverance from Sisera, that it would be through Barak and Barak wouldn't get the glory. It would be through a woman, Jael, that would get the glory. But that the, the Canaanite army, they would be delivered into their hands. So his sovereignty. And then secondly, also in chapter 4, you have the things that God said would happen through the prophet happening as he said that they would happen. Sisera is delivered into their hands, just like he said it they would be. Israel has victory, just like he said would happen. In chapter 5, we learned that there was actually the weather that played a part in this as well, that he caused this big storm to come and the, the waters near Megiddo rose up and that caused the chariots from the Canaanite army to be useless, essentially. Uh, we also see, see in all of these things that this is God's providence on display. He, because he is sovereign, brings about these events to happen, and they happen in the way that he said they would. That, that is his providence. It is the outworkings of God's sovereign plan. Remember, everything that happens is technically providence. So it's, uh, it, it is the counsel of God's will uh, happening. Everything's happening according to the counsel of God's will. That's an example of what we saw there in Judges chapter 4 and 5. And then thirdly, you have people responding. In chapter 4, Barak is willing to go. A number of Israelites are willing to go into battle. Jael acts and she gets glory over Barak. In chapter 5, we learn that some people weren't willing to go to battle. And those who were willing were praised and they were honored. And then those who weren't willing to go, they were rebuked. And one of them, even Maraz, who we don't know much about, was even cursed. So the choices that people make matter. God is sovereign. He is providentially working everything according to the counsel of his will. Everything happens, happens according to God's sovereign plan. 
At the same time, we as people have choices to make, and those choices matter. They're not inconsequential. These things aren't contradictory. Um, and that's what we see happen here in the text, and that's what we experience in life as well, too. And so this is where we are confronted with that worldview problem that I mentioned last week that Dr. James Montgomery Boyce points out. He says that the world is greatly at odds with the Christian view of providence and sovereignty. And the reason for that is because the world has a religion of its own. And you need to understand this, okay, that people, that us, we are by nature religious. God, the creator of mankind, made us this way. We will worship something. Every one of us worships something. There's not a single person that has the cognitive d- development of a, you know, a child even that's growing up um, that is not worshiping something. And to narrow it down, this is what it always comes down to uh, if we simply narrow it down to the root. People will either worship God because they've been born again and they place their faith in Christ and his work. And there's no age to that. You don't have to be like an adult to be a person who worships God. You could be someone that's your guys' age. I've, you know, from people that I know, I've heard of, of young kids, even like three years old. I have a friend who says that, that she was saved as a three-year-old. Maybe, you know, because again, salvation, true belief and trust in God isn't something that we do in ourselves. It's something that God grants to us. And we just have to try to discern to see if those things are real or not. So either you believe in the true God or people ultimately worship the self. They ultimately worship their own selves. When the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and he speaks about the way that the lost will be in the last days, and the last days are this time period that exists in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. So we're in the last days. Ever since Jesus ascended to heaven, that's when the last days started and it will continue until he comes again. Well, he said about the people, the lost people in that time, he, he says a lot of things about them. He actually lists off a laundry list. He says that people will be lovers of money. They'll be proud. They'll be heartless. They'll be treacherous. They'll be reckless. They'll be lovers of sin, uh, lovers of pleasure, and then about a dozen other evil characteristics. But he starts out by saying that people will be lovers of themselves. This is 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. Yeah, yeah, disobedience parents in there. So this, I mean, literally, I think 18 characteristics that he mentions. In other words, and he starts it off, though, by saying that they will be lovers of themselves. In other words, worshipers of themselves. They'll make an idol out of themselves, out of their idea of happiness and what makes them feel right. And it might play itself out in a number of different ways. As a matter of fact, in our culture today, it really displays itself in three ways primarily. I'm sure there's, there's, there's obviously more ways, but there's three that stand out at least. Um, it usually displays itself in a, in a love for money. And by that, what we really mean is people doing whatever it takes to earn money so that they get what they want. It's not really the money that, that they worship. It's what the money gets them. The respect, the, the, the view, the, the things, the women, the guys, whatever, whatever it is the money gets them. That's really what's being worshipped there. Then also, uh, sexual identity. That's why you have all this transgenderism, all this LGBT and whatever other letters you want to add to that, that thing. And then recently now, another big area of people worshipping themselves is in their um, ethnic identity. You know, I am this, I am this ethnicity, I, you're that ethnicity. And these things get all exalted to the point of God and the worship of God being put to the side or, or secondary, which is to not worship God properly. 
All of these things ultimately are self-worship. It is worshiping your own idea of yourself over what God is, has told you to worship, which is God himself. And the self-worshippers have a high and holy doctrine. It is the king of their system. It is the doctrine known as free will. I trust most of you have heard of this doctrine, this teaching before, this idea of free will, this concept. Now, to be fair, free will, the idea of free will also exists within Christianity. In other words, there is not like a mono, monolithic view of it. We don't have time to look at all of the different views. The, the free will that a Christian might say that they believe in is different than someone who doesn't believe in God and would say they believe in free will. It's, it's, it's different. But the Christian view um, is still not good. And so we don't have time to look at all the different nuances and origins of thought around this concept, but a popular view for today says this. It says, number one, that God has given, and this is within Christianity. That, so it'll, they'll say this, that God has given to every person a kind of grace that enables them to choose either good or bad. So the moment that you're born into this world, post the fall of Adam, every person is endued with a certain kind of grace, they call it prevenient grace, that enables them to be able to choose to do either good or bad, to choose to do something pleasing to God or to choose to obey God. They don't need any help from the Spirit per se. It gets a little, little wishy-washy at that point, but everyone in themselves has this ability to do that. And then secondly, this doctrine of free will says that God's sovereignty does not impose or interfere with man's will at all. That there is no providential working of God, in other words. And God's, so they also say that God's sovereignty doesn't have anything to do with control. And in fact, God is only in control of certain things, and he's certainly not in control of the choices for man that mankind makes, especially in regards of salvation. Now, this version of free will is admittedly, it's not as bad as the sort of free will that just says, there is no God at all. I'm my own, I'm autonomous myself. I can just do whatever I want. It's not as bad as that, but it's still not good. And it does damage the revelation of God. Scripture simply doesn't teach those things. Uh, For one, the idea of free will is not even mentioned in the Bible, uh, apart from one verse in the Old Testament. And that part there is in the concerning a what's called a free will offering. So you know in, in the Old Covenant there were these ceremonial laws and you would have to go to the temple to offer sacrifices for forgiveness of your sin. None of these things ever actually took away your sin. Uh, they were ways in which you could show your faith. And really those people who were saved in the Old Covenant were trusting in Christ for salvation. They were looking forward to the, to the work, the atonement that Christ would do on the cross. But there was all these types of things they could do. There was like bread offerings or grain offerings or different sorts of animals. And one thing that they could do is they could bring what was called a free will offering. A free will offering was not something that was required, but it was something extra, something maybe on on top of the required offerings that you were supposed to bring. And that would you know show your devotion to God. So people who already know God because of the covenant that God was in with them They could, of their own will, not related to any of the ceremonial laws, offer an extra sacrifice to the Lord in the temple or in the tabernacle. But that's much different than saying mankind is able to choose to do good or evil in every situation without the oversight or the help of God. In actuality, the Bible teaches that we are either slaves to righteousness or slaves to sin. A few verses, okay? John 8, 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. 
Now, I know that's a little difficult because we affirm that we as Christians are saved and we don't say that we are slaves to sin anymore, yet we still sin. So in the context of the passage, you know, Jesus is talking to people who were trapped in their sins, people who needed to be set free. But we also, when we sin as Christians, when we're aware of it, you know, we look to repent of it. We, God grants godly sorrow to us. We feel bad about our sin. And we look to, to be holy because Christ is holy. So it is a little bit complex. But here's another passage, Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So there you see kind of that transitionary thing there that Christians... They're no longer enslaved to sin. That doesn't mean we don't sin, but we're not enslaved to it. We'll get to that in a second. That hopefully will make some more sense about it. Galatians 5.1 For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So we're free in Christ. We're not under the yoke of slavery. Roman, but now, here's the confusing part again. Romans 6.18 And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. So if you're not a slave to sin, then you're actually still a slave to righteousness. More on that in just a moment. Romans 8, 7 to 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That is to say that they are slaves to sin and won't even seek to do good. Not biblical good, at least. Not good to please God. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying there in Romans 8. So it's a bit confusing, and I understand because Scripture talks about us being set free from sin, but that doesn't mean that then we are somehow at the level of God when we're free. So when we're set free from sin, we don't just become these autonomous creatures who are like have the same sort of freedom as God. People call it liber- uh, libertarian free will. That's not what the Bible says because we're actually still slaves, but slaves to righteousness. What happens is we acknowledge that God is our master. When God sets us free from sin, then we, we are no longer deceived to think that we are our own masters, but we realize that God is our master. And so we're slaves to righteousness. And we, we confess that, which is something that we would never do apart from God setting us free from sin in the first place. We're free from sin, but we're rightly called slaves to righteousness. So when we think of how God how his sovereignty and his providential plan works with our wills. We have to have these things in our minds if we're to not do damage to the revelation of God that he gave to us in his word. If we're going to keep God as the first cause and then confess people's, that people act within the bounds of the will as second causes, we need to rightly understand the will. So let me give you four categories and then we'll move on to examples from the Bible that show God being the first cause and people acting within their will, their free will, if you want, um, as a secondary cause. So if you want to start, you can move to Judges chapter 50, actually, because that's the first text we'll be, we'll be in. What? Oh, excuse me, Judges chapter 50. I mean Genesis 50. There is no oh, Judges say, 50. I know, with my memory verse, now I'm like... No, sir. Judges chapter 50. So these are, so what we're going to talk about before we read this is the ability of the will in creatures, in us. It's also called the fourfold state of human nature. Our, our, our nature as a human consists of our body and our will, our emotions. Um, 
but our wills are bound depending upon a couple of things. So we'll look at those things. When Adam and Eve were first created, they had a, they have a will, just like we have a will right now as well too. And we might say that, um, you know, they were in a, they were obviously in a very unique position, right? Because they were created in true righteousness and holiness. There was no sin in the world. They were placed in the garden. The garden is a, a type of the temple. They were supposed to keep it. They were supposed to protect it. Uh, Adam should have kicked the serpent out. You know, the serpent was in there teaching false doctrine. Should have got rid of that, that heretic, but he didn't. And so when they were first created, we should think of their will existing in this category, able to sin and able to not sin, right? Adam was, a test was put forward, Adam. You can eat of all, all the trees in the garden, but do not eat of, this, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you do, and the day that you do, you will die. So there's a test put before them. He, could, he had in his will the ability to either choose to obey or choose to disobey. And we know what happened, right? He disobeyed. So obviously the ability for him to disobey was there. He disobeyed and all mankind was plunged into sin and into death, into separation from God until God causes you to be born again. He causes you to be, um, well, that's the second category. I don't want to get ahead of myself. So after Adam sinned, what did he do? Do you guys remember? Adam and Eve. They, they made clothes and then they, out of fig leaves and then they hid. Right? They tried to hide from God. They were used to walking with God in the garden. But now God comes you know, to be with them and they're hiding from him. They don't want anything to do with him. So after the fall, what happened with their will, their nature, instead of being able to sin and able to not sin, they were able to sin and then not able to not sin. So in other words, all that they do in their will, all that they desire, they freely desire it. God doesn't have to force them to. This is what happened because the curse came upon them for breaking the covenant that, that they were in. So they went from being able to sin to able not to sin to being able to sin and then also not able to sin. All that they do is what? sin. It's able, so think of it, able, the second phrase is probably the tricky one. So they're able. No, <laughs> it, I could I could have told you in the uh, in the Latin, but pecar non uh, pecar, but that's more confusing. So I, the English. I just thought you, if I heard that, I just think you're going crazy. Oh, I would tell you it was Latin. So, anyways, able to sin, not able to not sin, and that's why you like that verse in Romans where there's enmity between God and man. They cannot please God in the flesh, even you know the the good things that a person might do, like a mom loves her children, she's not saved, technically it's still sinful because she's not doing it ultimately for the desire to worship God, to please Christ. Okay, so that's how mankind, our will is in that state. We freely sin in that state. Don't have to be coerced at all. Then when people are saved, when they're born again, your nature change, you're a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, and you actually are go, you go back to that condition that Adam and Eve were in. You're able to sin and able to not sin. That's the Christian experience, isn't it? Sometimes you, you have a desire that's sinful, and instead of doing it, you resist it. You're able to sin, and you're able to not sin, just like Adam and Eve. But the difference is, is that when you sin, it doesn't bring you upon all these covenant curses, because Christ's righteousness is covering you. That it's He's the reason why you're justified, not your own actions. But you are put in this position where you can sin and 
not choose to not sin. And that's why we leave lives, lives of prayer and you know, asking for mercy and grace to be holy. Because we need, God, we need God's help to not sin. Because sin is no longer our slave master. And then the last category is what we'll be like when we go to heaven. And it's, it's interesting because it's almost a, it's a, it's contrary to the fall state. In the glorified state, we are not able to sin and then able to not sin. So in, in heaven, right, there's no sin there. You're not going to be able to sin in heaven. So you are, your will, you are not able to sin and you're able to not sin. Okay, those are the four categories. And so when we think about the interactions within Scripture, we have to understand that people are within one of, the, uh, one of two categories. They're either in the second or the third category. The second category means that they're able to sin and they're able to not sin, which is, um, or not able to sin, which means that they're fallen. They don't, they're not believers in God. All that they do is sinful. Not they f- able to sin. Not able to not sin. That's not able to not sin. Definitely. Yeah, they can only sin. They can only sin. And, then, and then the other, the other category, which is people who are saved, they are able to sin and able to not sin. So every event in Scripture, every event that we experience, people are within those two categories. Um, and we act freely within them. Our choices are really our choices because our will is able to make those choices. So when we, or if we speak of a free will, we need of it being free. We need to speak of it of being free within those categories. People freely make choices within the ability of their will slash nature. And God in his perfect wisdom is sovereignly bringing about his perfect will in such a way that these things don't cancel each other out. Yeah. Did we actually ever read a passage from Genesis 13? Not yet. We're about to. So the rest of our time, we're going to consider three examples that show God is sovereign and working his will as the first cause, and then people still having a choice which happens in accord with their will. So the first example is the example of Joseph. He's the 11th son of Abraham. His brothers were sinners and exceptional at that in many ways. Uh, They were jealous of him, and so they devised this plan to get rid of him that was contrary to God's justice and righteousness. And they end up selling him into slavery, and from there, God's providence brings him all the way to Egypt, where he ends up running Pharaoh's kingdom. At the time, Egypt was the, you know, the world power in that area, certainly. And so he ends up becoming pretty much the, the second command to Pharaoh. He ends up ru- ruling or running all of Pharaoh's kingdom. Yeah, Adam? Did you have a hand up? Did you say that he's the 11th son of Abraham? Yes. Jacob. Of Jacob. I did say Abraham. I mean of Jacob. (laughs) Um, And so the Lord brings about events that causes uh, Joseph's family to come to to him for food. There's this famine in the land. Joseph's Joseph's family, even his dad, they need to come and and, um, get grain and supplies so that they can survive. So this whole complex drama plays out in which Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. They get terrified. They're scared at first. They think that he's going to get revenge upon them. Uh, His father even gets to see him as well. But when his race is over, and his life comes to an end, the brothers are scared again. So look at me, Genesis 50, verse 15 to 19. 
says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers, their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of your servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. So they, they're still sinning. They made up a lie. Verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So notice verse 20 there. Don't miss that. As, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Don't miss that, you guys. Joseph doesn't say that God allowed this to happen for your good. It doesn't say that God brought good out of a very bad situation. That's a very different thing. It's God meant it for good. God brought it about. He orchestrated the events. And his brothers, they meant it for evil. This is the belief of Joseph. This is the, these are the inspired words of Scripture. It's that God meant it. He brought it about. The point is that God is the first cause. The brothers of Joseph are the second cause, and they did what they wanted to do, which was evil. God didn't force them to do it. They acted within their nature. If they were saved or, or not, we don't know. Uh, the heads of the tribes, I believe that they were all saved under the grace and mercy of God. But even though in that condition, you can freely choose to sin or to not sin. They were able to do that. And so God was sovereignly working through the free choices of the people involved. But notice he meant it all for good. When God decreed that the brothers would do the evil that they did, it's not, as, it's not as if he made them do something that was contrary to their desire. We don't know for sure how it works, but I simply like to think that he just withholds his grace, the grace that would prevent them from sinning. He just lets them act according to their nature, and they do what they did. They, in their will, did the desire of their heart, but God brought good out of it, and he meant it for good. And that's something that we always need to understand about God's sovereignty and his providence as well. For believers, for those of us who are united to Christ in faith, it is always meant for good. It, Romans 8.28, For God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's always for good. For those who aren't, they don't, they don't have that promise. Secondly, let's flip over to Isaiah chapter 10. So go past the Psalms. You should see it shortly after that. There's a lot of short books. Isaiah chapter 10. This is the example of Assyria. This is a, while you get there, I'll set this, uh, the stage for it. It's a bit more complex, but we still see the point that God is the first cause, once again, who uses the free evil choices, in this case, of people to accomplish good. At this point, Israel is in rebellion to the Lord, and God is using Isaiah to warn them of the coming judgment. That's what the prophets would often do. They would be like these beacons to, to repent and to turn because the judgment of God is going to come. And they would also announce Christ and the forgiveness that would come in Christ. And so at this point, um, Isaiah is, is warning them. And we're in Isaiah, in Isaiah 9. He goes into these details about the ways in which Israel is oppressing the poor. And the, Lord's God, the Lord God's sovereign plan is to bring a corrupt government against them as his judgment. So if you're there, look at verse 5 in Isaiah chapter 10. He says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. 
against the godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down in the mire. So there you see a lot of the sovereignty, right? God is saying that he's sending them. He's, com- he's sending them against the people that he commands. And you see what ha- what's happening here is God is actually pronouncing judgment on Syria. On Assyria, I'm sorry. He's pronouncing judgment on Assyria, all the while taking credit for their actions. He's the first cause. Assyria is the rod of his anger. But then in verse 7, we see that Assyria doesn't do it because they, are, they believe that they're serving the Lord. Remember, our choices matter. What's the reason why we make these choices? Assyria is not going against this nation, which is Israel, because they're doing it to honor the Lord. They're doing it because it's in their heart to destroy. They're simply doing what they want, unforced by God, and God has accomplished His will through these actions. Okay, verse 7, he says, But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. Then if you look down to verse 12, in the same chapter, it says, When the Lord has finished all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Okay, so again, Assyria, God's going to punish Assyria for doing the thing that God ultimately decreed to happen because of the reason as to why Assyria was doing it, because they were hungry for glory and power. They weren't doing it to honor the Lord. If you look down, skip a couple verses, down to verse 15. He says, Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? In other words, the axe is Assyria. The him who hews with it is God. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as a staff should lift him who is not wood? In other words, what's really doing the damage? If a person has an axe and they're cutting some wood, is the, the axe doing the damage, or is the person doing the damage? It's both, but really if the person's not swinging the axe, then no wood's getting cut, right? So. Certainly. It's the third. Yeah, it's, it, it's the Lord's work um, through Assyria that's happening here. And Assyria is, is going to not give God glory because they don't love him. They'll be punished. And so the woe at, verse, at the end of verse 5 will be fulfilled. They're simply the axe in the hand of God, the rod in the hand of God. Again, God's sovereignty is not limited by the choices of people. God is sovereignly working through them all, through everything. And then one last example, and we'll finish up. The example in Acts. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2. New Testament, fifth book. Oh, wow. Closing it. Closing your Bible. Acts chapter (laughs) 2. Hopefully many of you guys are familiar with this passage. This is that passage that Peter is giving that first sermon after Pentecost. And 3,000 people are converted at the end of it. And in the sermon, he illustrates for us once more that the reality that God is sovereign and he's working all things to the counsel of his will, including the choices of people, including even their evil choices. And he doesn't force people to do this evil. They just do it of their own choice. And not only does he express this, but he does it in the highest way possible as we learn about the greatest evil that ever happened, the murder of the only perfect son of God. So Acts 2, 22 through 24. Oops, went too far. what? 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, killed by the hands of lawless men. Men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
You see it there, don't you? Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of the Pharisees. No. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was God's plan that it happened this way. We know the story of how Jesus was betrayed and how he was brought before the council of religious leaders, how he was brought before the Roman magistrates, and how at the end of it all, the corrupt world system sent him to the cross, including our own sin. And there he was crucified and he was killed. It was done at the hands of lawless men, we read in verse 23. So people doing it, yet it was God's definite plan. Not only God does have control over our evil acts, but he's pleased to use a person's evil choices to bring about good, and in this case, the ultimate good, the means by which sinners will be saved. So again, we've spent time concerning or covering these doctrines. Sorry for going a little bit long tonight. But it's important that we, again, that we be doctrinal as Christians, that we know what we believe. Because again, these are, these are the sorts of issues that are they're going to come up in your life and they're going to help you to either be firmly planted and rooted in the faith, or when you become older and you have the desires of the world, these questions will stand before you as being unanswered, and then there will be reasons for you to doubt. So that's why we're going over these more doctrinal, heavy things right now. And plus, you know, just what we believe matters. If we believe wrongly about God, and then you tell others about it, that's lying about God. And no one wants to do that, right? No one who loves him, certainly. And these doctrines that we're considering, they're difficult ones. I admit that. They're hard for me. They're not super easy to understand. But we're dealing with the creator of all things. It should be expected for us, for these things to be difficult, for creatures, for us to understand the creator. But as we've seen in our text in Judges 4 and Judges 5, our responses still matter regardless of God being sovereign. Our choices are the ones, are ones that we make and we are responsible for them. So, so pray to God that you'll always live in accordance with his will, that you'll have the grace needed to choose what is good and right and true. God will, God will bring out his will regardless, but the invitation is extended to you. The invitation is extended to you through Christ to do that which will earn praise for your actions to the glory of Christ. So look to Christ. And next week we'll be in chapter 6. And so I know that this is confusing, so if you have questions, we could deal with um, some questions after we pray, but let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and again, we, we pray for understanding, especially in, in this regard of this topic, how it is that we could rightly understand your sovereignty and your providential workings and doings. We know that this especially, this doctrine especially butts up against our flesh, that fallen man utterly rejects it. But we ask that you give us eyes of faith that we might understand what your word says, that we might see these two teachings side by side and rightly talk about them in such a way that you would be glorified. Help us to, to give you the glory that you deserve. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.